Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of, of your very own, uh, don't have one that you can call yours, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things, the best of all the awesome reasons for why he gave us the scriptures uh, is that he uses the, his word to reveal himself to his people. And so if you want to know God, you pursue chasing him. You go after knowing him by putting your nose in the scriptures and reading. It's really that, uh, that, that simple. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, you can call yours. Take that one home. Um, so it's Christmas Eve, y'all. I don't know if you knew that. We're, we're almost at the very, very tippy top of Advent Mountain, all right? Um, and if you're wondering uh, what the peak of Advent Mountain is, it's singing a much better version of Silent Night, a cappella, while you hold a candle, right? Like that's the tippy top of Advent Mountain, all right? Uh, and so like we're almost there. It's like six hours, six and a half-ish hours away uh, from, well, well, maybe more like eight. All right, so anyways, it's hard to do math while I'm talking. All right, so we're, we're getting close. We're almost there. All right, um, so I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's been a little bit of an awkward month for our church. Uh, as we've been dealing with, the, with things, um, we've been looking at a lot of Adventy kind of stuff. Uh, in our time in the Word together, uh, but we haven't actually spent much time at all, almost none that I can tell, actually talking about what Advent even is. So that kind of makes things a little awkward. I, I don't know if you have much of a church background. Maybe you don't. Maybe your, your background has just never made a, a specific point of celebrating Advent as kind of a distinct thing, all right, uh, then you might be wondering kind of like what all this stuff is about. You might be in the dark about this stuff. You keep, we keep throwing around a word, and you're not really sure why, Right? Right, so what is Advent? What is Advent? Well, simply put, it's the month-long anticipation and lead-up to the Christian celebration of Christmas. And I don't know if you caught all of the words in that sentence, but every single word in that sentence was an important qualifier. It is the month-long anticipation and lead-up to the Christian celebration of Christmas. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I mean, in the month that leads up to Christmas, just called the Christmas season? Like, why don't we just call it that? That seems normal. Well, the answer is that really depends on who you're talking to. In fact, it depends greatly on who you're talking to because those two things are not actually the same. Those terms often get used in interchangeable ways by people who probably, I would think, mean well. I don't think there's any antagonism buried in there. Uh, and so they probably mean well, but they are not at all the same. In fact, when you look at them closely, the Christmas season and Advent are actually galaxies apart. They could not be further apart. They may overlap on the calendar, but they are not the same thing. And, uh, and, and so by my estimation, there are two very key distinctions, uh, differences um, between them. Their focus and their velocity. Their focus and their velocity. And so what, what do I mean by that? Well, the Christmas season, as our culture typically tries, I think, to define it, at least from my vantage point, I mean, it's the half-happiest season of all, right? We got, we got songs about that stuff. Even though, I don't know if you've noticed this, but that's not actually true for most people. Right? Am I off the mark there? There are a lot of people in this world, that, and probably even a number of people in this very room, that the month of December is filled with incredible heartache. It's filled with painful memories. It's filled with conversation topics that people who love them and are smart should not bring up. 
maybe even filled with a few places and things that they plan to avoid this time of the year. And I think there's a reason why for some people they just don't have the bandwidth for the, for the hap- happiest season of all. The fuel, the fuel of uh, what I think our culture's understanding of the Christmas season is, well, it's a human manufactured attempt at joy. I don't know if you've seen that yourself. I don't know if you've ever actually paid attention to it, but I mean, just think about it for a second. It's it's a nostalgic Old Navy commercial and a Norman Rockwell painting that no one's ever actually lived in. We've got this culturally ingrained idea of what Christmas is supposed to be like and whether, whether that idea came from movies you watched or faded childhood memories that aren't exactly the way the story played out. Or, but, but we're all supposed to act like that, that, that perfect Christmas season is just barely within our reach. And so if we try a little harder and we fiddle with the settings just a little bit, get everything finally dialed in, we'll get there, Right? And so put on your happy face and spend a little more on the gifts this time around and join back in with the party and maybe go to another one if you can squeeze it in on the calendar because that's what you're supposed to do, right? Just fake it until you make it. I I know I'm at risk of being misheard, so let me clarify. I'm about as far as someone can get from the Christmases to commercial tribe. Those aren't my people. I love, I geek out every single year over Christmas lights and over buying presents for people I care about. And I adore watching the same Christmas movies with my kids. By the way, just as an important aside, Les was talking about Christmas Carol adaptations. There's only one that ought to be on the list. It's the Muppet Christmas Carol. (laughs) All other opinions are wrong. It is the best adaptation of the Christmas Carol. The, The debate is over. The flag has been planted. Hush. All right. I'm not the Christmas is too commercial guy. That's not my people. But at the same time, right? Like at the same time, two things can be true at once. Can can anybody really argue with the fact that Christmas has become something that looks completely unrecognizable to what the very first Christians would have celebrated? They're not the same. Like we're all on the same page about that, right? Can anybody argue with the fact that both inside the church and outside the church, people have picked up bits and pieces of the Christian Christmas celebration and they've run with it in directions that are really, really, really hard to follow if you've got any kind of real-world understanding of sin and the brokenness of the world. I don't know. I think, I think we all eventually get to a point where human-manufactured joy finally runs out of gas. I know I've been there been there multiple times, whether it was robbed from you by the actions of someone else or just you ran with it as long as you could until it finally stopped satisfying you one day. I think we've all found ourselves at times sitting in the rubble and the ruin of a Christmas season that just didn't deliver on any of the promises it made. Or am I the only one? (laughs) And there are There are ways that I think that we're able to respond when we find ourselves in that moment. Just a limited number of ways. Uh, uh, One, you you can go looking for some other kind of human manufactured joy producer. Put that toy down and go pick up a different toy for a little bit. Run that one until it finally lets you down too. Two, you can get embittered about it all. Throw up your hands and walk away. Go full Grinch mode in the worst way possible and just burn down every Christmassy thing in your warpath. 
Or three, there's a third option. The third option is that you can realize that you were created for a much more eternal joy than all the man-made stuff swirling around you could ever dream of fulfilling. Ever dream of producing. That no matter how big the pile gets, human manufactured joy can never, ever satisfy an eternity-shaped hunger. And this is where, church, this is where the Christian celebration of Advent steps confidently onto the scene. Advent is a Latin word. It means the coming or the arrival. And where the Christmas season, quote-unquote, is where the Christmas season is an ever-increasing rush for more, Advent is an intentional tempo change in the other direction. It's a 180 spin and a taking your foot off of the gas pedal. See, when Advent is celebrated correctly, and not merely as some interchangeable term for the Christmas season, but when, it, when it's actually meant to be, when it's celebrated correctly, it forces us to slow down and to really kind of take stock for the first time, maybe, of what's actually going on around us. It forces us to take our attention off of the to-do list and off of the calendar and off of whatever the next thing happens to be that you got to deal with. And it forces us to put our attention squarely on who God is. And what God has done, and what's even better, what God has promised to do. It forces us to loosen our grip on functional saviors that we dressed up in holiday apparel. And instead, it causes us to cling with everything in us to the one who can actually deliver on true and everlasting joy. What's really interesting to me, I know I know my brain works in a weird way, and but honestly, just thinking about this, it kind of dumbfounds me. The manner in which God delivers on that true and eternal joy, well, it looks completely opposite of the way that all the functional saviors in our culture, in our Christmas season, try to deliver on joy. It couldn't be any more different. Case in point. Um, the gap between God and man was not bridged by me or by you or anything of our own doing, but by God himself. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us, we are told. He came near. He came in humility. He came in poverty and obscurity. Church, listen to me. He came as a baby. Like, like think through the how and the why of that for a second. He came as a baby. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, I, am, I feel like I'm an expert in the field, right? but babies are pretty much incapable of doing anything important. They, they, they can't do much. In fact, they're pretty much helpless. I, I, don't, I, I don't even like holding newborns because I feel like they're going to break. Right? Um, I had to with my own kids, but like my wife could tell you, any of the new parents around here could tell you, like, like I'm waiting until a year before I'm, I'm worried about your kid, all right? Like, I got to get them on the same developmental level as me before I can play. All right. Um, <laughs> newborn babies are helpless. They're helpless. They, they need to be fed. They need to be changed. They need to be bathed. Most of the time, you can't even get them to calm down enough to go to sleep unless you rock them and sing some, some stuff, right? Babies are helpless. They're completely at the mercy of someone else taking care of them. So that raises a significant question in me. I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who likes to, to ponder weird theological questions. I don't know if that's you, but 
Why in the world? Like seriously, why in the world would the long-expected Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, we're told, step into humanity in the most vulnerable way that someone could step into humanity? Why a baby? Like why would the one who, who, who is vested in infinite glory and might, the one who spoke the cosmos into existence by the sheer power of his word and will, like why would the promised Savior, the great Messiah and Redeemer, who's supposed to turn this place upside down and finally save his people from cosmic bondage, right? Why would that God come in the specific way that Jesus came? Because i got to be honest with you, if I'm the one in charge of writing the story, that ain't the way I'm writing the story. You better than me? My imaginary heroes always come in guns blazing. They step onto the scene with strength and power, and they wipe the floor with the bad guys, right? My imaginary heroes are Marvel demigods with a face that looks strangely like my own. Yours too. God could write the incarnation story any way he pleased. Jesus could have stepped into humanity in peak physical condition with an army at his heels ready to show those dirty old Romans who's boss. That's the story that could have been written. But that's not the story that our God wrote. Instead, God put on flesh and dwelt among us in such a way that seems to have left him intentionally vulnerable intentionally helpless. Now, last I checked, our God doesn't do oopsies. And so we can't possibly be talking about some literary oversight of someone who could have benefited from some editorial help. That's not what's going on in the story. No, see, there's actually an incredibly clear, important theological reason why Jesus needed, and and the correct word is needed, to come in vulnerability. And that brings us finally, I know I've been talking for a while, that brings us finally to our text for the morning, Hebrews chapter 2. We're not sure exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews. We we can't pin that down, but uh, there's a lot of debate around it. But what we do know is that Hebrews is all about pointing to how Jesus is the fulfillment and even the amplification of every single promise that was given to Israel. All right? And so Jesus is the greater lawgiver, and he's the greater high priest, and he's the final sacrifice for sin. And and in Hebrews chapter 2, we read this in verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So let me back up there and figure out who we're talking about here. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 15. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right, so just five verses. That's all we got, five verses. And so that's all we're going to look at this morning. But um, the, the writer of Hebrews just shoved an awful lot of stuff into five verses, a lot of heady stuff, actually. Uh, and so we're obviously going to have to skip a couple of things just for the sake of time, but, uh, but there's some things that were just said here that have a direct impact on how we look at and celebrate Advent. And they should. 
The author starts out with an incredibly earth-shaking assumption in verse 14. Do you see it? The assumption is that because you and I are wrapped in flesh and blood, that our salvation could not happen unless God himself showed up one day also wrapped in flesh and blood. That's the assumption. That's a big assumption. Like run down the list in your head real quick of all the different ways that you might imagine God reconciling a people to himself. Think of all the ways that you might imagine him fixing the problem of our sin and, and overturning the punishment that is due for that sin. Think about how you would choose to establish the kingdom of God forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews just said that Jesus, if he was going to actually be able to save a flesh and blood people, needed to, quote, partake of the same things. Okay, but why? Why would that be necessary? Well, for several reasons, actually. The first one's found at the end of verse 14. We're told that he might, quote, destroy the one who has, the po- has power over death that is the devil. Those of you who have been here for several years now, you've heard me say over and over again each Christmas season, um, we celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. The little baby asleep in the hay, he came for a purpose. That purpose was to die. He put on flesh and blood specifically so that flesh and blood could be put to death. That death isn't some mere coincidence, it's, it's a turnaround. It's an epic turnaround. The writer of Hebrews just says uh, that Jesus stepped in at the, as the rightful monarch to defeat the usurper and the greatest weapon Satan had, the wages of sin, right? That weapon is the weapon that Jesus used to undo him. What a story, man. Jesus used the weapon and then destroyed the weapon in his resurrection. And so the logic is as simple as it can get. The death and resurrection of the Son of God could not happen without first having the incarnation of the Son of God. But as great as defeating Satan sounds, and I mean that's a pretty cool reason for Jesus to show up, but as great as that sounds, it's not the best reason for the incarnation. It's not the best reason for Jesus to put on flesh and then die and then be raised again. And a better reason is found in verse 15. Look at it. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not, the, not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So not only does Jesus defeat the one who has power over death, but he also rescues his people from slavery to death so that they don't have to fear death anymore. For the follower of Jesus, death is now powerless to hurt you in an eternal way. This is the same reality that led Paul to just kind of burst out with singing in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting, right? Jesus has come to the rescue of those who belong to him. He saved them out of bondage. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free, as that fun little song claims. But again, don't don't hear more in, in that claim than we're supposed to hear in that claim because that, that rescue is not for everyone. What does it say? We're told here that it's a discerning rescue. He doesn't do this for angels. He doesn't rescue every person. We're told that he helps, or, or the, the Greek there kind of grabs a hold of those who are the offspring of Abraham. So the obvious question is, well, who's the offspring of Abraham then? 
Well, Galatians 3, 7 tells us exactly who the offspring of Abraham are. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What does that mean? It means that the inheritors of the promises made to Abraham and his family are those who look like their father by having the same faith in God's promises as their father did. It's through faith in God's promises that we belong to the family of God and are sons of Abraham. So think about it for even just half a second, right? Two of the most amazing truths about Jesus' incarnation are, one, a conquest of the enemy, and two, a rescue of his people. Who in here is not watching that movie, right? That's a good movie. Good book. I'd read it. But it's also another guns blazing hero story. You don't need a baby for that one. Right? You don't need a tumble down stable and a manger full of straw. You don't need helplessness. You don't need vulnerability for that story. In fact, they're in the way of that story. And so those two realities of the incarnation are both needed realities. They both produce worship in us as his people, as the beneficiaries of his grace. They inspire us to awe and, 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 and delight in who God is and what he has done. But they don't actually answer my question. Why a baby? Why did the one who holds the universe together choose to come in the most vulnerable way possible? And church, the answer to that is found in verse 17. Verse 17, therefore. Another great Bible word. I love the word therefore almost as, I, as much as I love the word but. Um, the writer of Hebrews just set the table for us, right? Therefore what? Therefore what? Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that, another good set of Bible words, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews says in every respect. So what does that mean? It means in all of the ways. In all of the ways. The incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the putting on flesh and dwelling among us, the, the flesh and blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews just said that Jesus had to be made like you and me in all the ways that truly make us you and me. 95% human wouldn't cut it. Church, the reason, the reason why Jesus came in utter vulnerability is because you and me, we are an incredibly vulnerable people. We are weak, we are broken, we are incapable of actually fixing any of our problems, of providing for ourselves. We are truly, truly helpless. And I get it, I know that that's not a popular message in our culture. Very aware of that. In fact, it sounds like a backwards way into the kind of joy that Old Navy commercials and Norman Rockwell paintings try to sell us. You can't get there through that pathway. Man, does it sure line up a lot more closely to our real world experience, right? You'll never find that message in the commercials and the paintings, but neither will you ever find real people in those places either. So what exactly then is the difference between an insufficient human manufactured joy and the real thing? What's the difference between those two things? 
The Christian definition of joy, I would describe it as a deep rest and a glad-hearted satisfaction in the presence and provision of Jesus. It's not some happy face that you manage to slap on top of whatever you're actually feeling. It's not a fake it until you make it kind of nonsense. No, it is a delightful confidence, a free releasing of control because the goodness of the Lord has burrowed its way deeper inside of you than the circumstances in your life ever could. That's the biblical definition of joy. And, th- and this is where the upside-downness of Jesus' kingdom proves itself to be truly upside-down, right? Because for human-manufactured joy, the game we all try to play is to distract ourselves from the mess. That's the game, right? Push it to the side, get it in the corner, get in the closet if you're able, and then put on the show. But Jesus does the exact opposite of that. He steps willingly into our mess and takes it upon himself. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that it was necessary, and the correct word is necessary. It was necessary for Jesus to experience the fullness of human vulnerability. And so what does that mean? Well, we get hungry and, and don't have, can't do anything about it, and so Jesus needed to experience a helpless hunger. We get tired. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we get tired sometimes. Jesus needed to understand the full weight of human exhaustion. We get sick, we, get, we feel defeated, we're left betrayed and undone by the sinful actions of someone we love. It was necessary for Jesus to experience every one of those things. Okay, but why? Why was it necessary? Well, we're told in the middle of verse 17. So that. It was necessary for Jesus to experience the fullness of of human vulnerability because that was the way, the way that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. All right, what's a priest then? Well, a priest is a mediator, a go-between. Someone who both represents God to his people and represents the people to their God. The problem, I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament for yourself, the problem with the long line of human priests in the Old Testament is they were always full of their own sin. Um, just absolute wrecks. They, they needed to be redeemed themselves. And so we ultimately needed a high priest who didn't bring his own mess to the table. Therefore, the eternal Son of God steps in as perfectly faithful. Like us in every way, yet sinless. Completely obedient to the Father. See, the, the, the problem with that, that plan, though, the complete obedience plan, um, the, the God in the flesh plan, the problem is that the, that only reflects one side of the divided parties that need to be reconciled. Have you ever sat in a situation where two parties need to be reconciled? But if your mediator is representing one party and not both, you have a bad mediator on your hands. Right? But the God-man, Jesus the Christ. He's the perfect high priest because he is more than merely faithful. Because of the incarnation, he is also perfectly merciful. Yes, he lived sinlessly, and because of his sinless faithfulness, he is able to make propitiation for sin. Propitiation is a, is a payment, a ransom, we could call it. Satisfaction has been made in full for the wages of our sin, right? Jesus is the perfectly faithful high priest, but also because of his incarnation and vulnerability, Jesus truly, and I mean truly, understands our plight. And so he stands merciful because he truly understands what it's like 
what it's like to live in a world that's broken by sin in all of the ways that the world is broken. Okay, but where's the joy part come in? Does Stephen know this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon? How in the world, how in the world does a faithful and merciful high priest actually bring true joy? Like, where does that come in? Well, I'll admit, the word joy is not found anywhere in verse 18. It's not there. Um, But I am 100% convinced that the necessary circumstance for joy is absolutely found in verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Follower of Jesus, your Savior came near. He came near. Unless you get the wrong idea about what exactly that means, unless you get some kind of incomplete picture of of all that that entails, hear me, Jesus did not simply step in a little bit, lean in a little bit, and give you some kind of token side hug. That's not what we're doing here. He didn't pop in to make a quick appearance and then brush you off because, you know, you know, he's got some more important things to handle off somewhere else. He condescended into our brokenness, into our pain, into our heartache that is our humanity. He knows exactly what our lives are like, not only because he sees every end from the beginning, he's got that in his toolbox for sure, but he's also walked through the brokenness himself. He knows exactly what we deal with by experience. And this is a massive theological reality that I'm pretty sure almost nobody in the room except me has ever really thought through, right? So the incarnation means that the infinite, unchanging God somehow added empathy to his character. How does that work? I don't know. But according to Hebrews 2.18, this needs to be One of the lenses we look through for God's unchangingness. According to Hebrews 2.18, because Jesus walked through the human experience himself, he now, not, not, not as always, he now stands ready and able to walk with it through you, uh, through it with you as well. He is able now to help those who are being tempted. Church, what we celebrate in each Advent, it is infinitely bigger and infinitely more life-changing than the lost world around us has any clue of, right? The Christmas season, it's way too small for this. It's way too small. I love the lights, and I love the presents, and yes, I absolutely love a Muppet Christmas Carol, but those things add flavor and nuance to this season, right? We can and should lean into those things, but the Christian, the Christians celebrate, what well, the Christians celebrate in Advent, man, is the coming of a God who refused, just doggedly refused to remain far away. He came near. He stepped purposefully into our mess. He put on flesh and blood and dwelt among us, not because it made for some cute little holiday story. He doesn't need cute little holiday stories. No, he came because he is good. And he sought to do all of the necessary things to reconcile you to himself. To make you his, including coming in utter vulnerability and weakness so that he could become the perfect high priest for you. And if true joy, 
church of true joy. And by that, mean, I mean a biblically defined joy. Now, the kind of joy that our culture says they're desperate for and keep chasing after insufficient functional saviors to try and, and find. That joy. If true joy comes from a deep rest and a glad-hearted satisfaction in the presence and the provision of Jesus, hear God's word for you this morning. There is no pain too great. There is no weakness too debilitating. There is no vulnerability that you happen to find yourself in right now where Jesus cannot look you straight in the eye and say, my beloved, I know, I know. You don't have to put on some face with me. You don't have to fake it until you make it. I don't care. I know exactly what you're going through. And I'm here with you and for you. You are mine. You are loved. I know. Are you in search of a delightful confidence this season? Man, I am. Are you in a desperate search to find Someone worthy of releasing control to. Church, according to the Bible, that can only ever come through knowing and trusting Jesus as Savior. Can only ever come by allowing the goodness of who He is to burrow deeper inside of you than whatever circumstances you happen to be staring at right now. So if you're here this morning and you're you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Man, man, I love that you chose to hang out with us today. I'm glad you're here. I don't, I don't know who or what dragged you to church this morning, but hear me. I want so much more for you than anything that you might ever ascribe to the Christmas season. You can do better. You can know the one who brings real peace and everlasting joy. Okay, okay but how? Well, the Bible teaches that because of our sin, all people by default are separated relationally from God and that that we're owed the just and right punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it a number of things, but one of the things it calls it is death. But the Bible also teaches, also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with an incredibly great love that even when we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive through the grace of Christ. And so what we celebrate each Advent, that the, that the Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us, that wasn't some cute little story. No, it was for a purpose. The baby asleep on the hay came to die. He died on a cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. But he was also raised again from the dead as a vindication of his, of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. He had righteousness enough to spare. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today, man. I'd love to be helpful to you. Let's talk. Well, what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? How can we respond this morning? Same way we always do. By repenting of sin and by leaning into what God is revealing about himself in this text. And so, I don't know, maybe, it's, maybe it would be timely and appropriate to ask yourself a question. Does your Christmas celebration look fundamentally different than the lost world around you? I know it's a, I know it's a question that kind of stings a little bit. But answer it honestly. Would, would, there, would they notice that it's different than what they spend their time and their energy chasing after? That doesn't mean you have to purge all the extra stuff. I love a whole bunch of that extra stuff. But do they see a peace in you? 
and a hope in you and a love in you and yes, even a joy in you that feels awkwardly out of reach for them. And if not, what needs to shift so that they do? In a second, I'm going to pray and Rob's going to come up and play another song. That's the time that we set aside each week to, to give you space to respond. I'll be down front if you want to talk. Let's talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by, by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it, you know, he's been calling you to, to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, and it's time to publicly say yes to that. I don't know, but I'm here to help. Whoever you are and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for joy that outstrips what the world has to offer. Joy that is, its foundation is set deeper than circumstance. Deeper than pain and deeper than vulnerability because we have a perfect high priest who is able to help and walk with us. Father, as we Hold up and celebrate the joy you give this season. Would it look different than nostalgic commercials and faded memories? Would it be something that changes our present and changes our eternity? Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you call yourself to them, uh, call, call them to yourself this morning? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Draw men and women into your kingdom today for your good pleasure. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.